gonna do? The question isn't what are we going to do, the question is what aren't we going to do. Don't say we're not gonna take the car home. Please don't say we're not gonna take the car home. Please don't say... If you had access to a car like this, would you take it back right away? Neither would I. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is episode 81, and I'm your host, Jeffrey Kelly. I'm an old man from the Midwest. The idea of this podcast is to force me to watch films that are out of my comfort zone, films I wouldn't normally watch. And for that, I depend on the listener. So next time you watch a movie and it causes you to scratch your head and say to yourself, what was that about? Keep me in mind. I'll have information on how you can reach me at the end of today's show. Today, however, I'm going to do something a bit different. A young listener named Aiden requested that I do the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the John Hughes film from 1986 starring Matthew Broderick, Mia Sarah, and Alan Ruck. And I thought to myself, well, I haven't seen this movie since, well, probably 1986, so why not? And you know, it's funny, when you get to be an old man like myself, you still think of these films from the 80s and 90s as modern cinema. It seems like they just came out yesterday. But when I was growing up in the 70s, a film like Casablanca seemed like a film from the old days, from from the beginning of time. In 1975, Casablanca was 33 years old. Right now, Ferris Bueller is 37 years old. So I guess to a young person of today, watching Ferris Bueller is, is not so different than when I watched films from the 1940s. So, so good job, Aiden. Okay, and one more thing, Aiden. I assume you like this film, but I'm going to warn you. I plan on being honest when it comes to this classic. I've got some things to say later that, well, we'll get to it. Anyway, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What is Ferris Bueller's Day Off? In the opinion of this educator, Ferris is not taking his academic growth seriously. Ferris lives in the Chicago suburbs, and he's getting ready to graduate from high school. One day, he decides to skip school because, well, it's too nice of a day to be in school. Besides, as Ferris says, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. So he tricks his parents into thinking he's sick. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. But he doesn't fool his younger sister. In fact, he taunts her, winks at her when his parents aren't looking. She's obviously jealous that he gets to stay home. You're letting him stay home? I can't believe this. If I was bleeding out my eyes, you guys would make me go to school. This is so unfair. 
Now, one thing about Ferris is, well, how can I say it? He's a spoiled rich kid. His parents are well off. They live in a very expensive, large home. Look, he has the stereo system in his bedroom that is something I could have only dreamed about when I was his age. Anyway, he decides to spend the day having fun, and he brings along two of his friends. The first is Cameron. He's a hypochondriac who has awful parents. Hello? Cameron, babe, what's happening? Very little. How do you feel? Shredded. Is your mother in the room? She's in Decatur. Unfortunately, she's not staying. Where are you? I'm taking the day off. Now get dressed and come on over. You can't, stupid. I'm sick. That's all in your head. Come on over. He's also Ferris's best friend. Cameron also lives in a home that's, well, expensive. On a side note here, it's a real home in Highland Park, Illinois, not too far from where I grew up. And in 2009, it was up for sale for $2.3 million. And I'll have a little more on that later. The other one to follow him along on this day off is his girlfriend, Sloane Peterson. Now, to get her out of school, he gets Cameron to call the school, pretending to be Sloane's father, telling Principal Rooney that her grandmother has just died. And then he convinces Cameron to let him use his father's beautiful 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider to pick her up in school. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT, California. Less than 100 were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love, it is his passion. It is his fault he didn't lock the garage. Ferris, what are you talking about? Together, the three of them will spend the day in Chicago, visiting the Sears Tower, the Art Institute of Chicago, dining at an upscale restaurant, go to Wrigley Field to watch the Cubbies, and there's a parade in which Ferris jumps up onto a float and sings Danke Shane and Twist and Shout. What do you think Ferris is going to do? It's going to be a fry cook on Venus. Of course, it's not all that easy. For one, his sister Jeannie is out to prove he's a fraud. And more important, Ed Rooney, the dean of schools, is oddly obsessed with Ferris and is determined to catch Ferris and his friends in the act of ditching school. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Uh-huh. Last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. Well, makes you look like an ass is what he does, Ed. Thank you, Grace. I think you're wrong. And there are a few more complications. One, all the other high school students think Ferris needs a new kidney and is dying. They begin a Save Ferris campaign and begin raising money to help him buy that kidney. And then they park the expensive Ferrari in a Chicago parking garage and two parking lot attendants take it for a joyride. This is a problem because the car is Cameron's father's pride and joy and he knows the mileage exactly. 
Cameron? Yeah. How many miles did you say this thing had on it when we left? 126 and halfway between three and four tenths. Why? How many miles are on it now? We never get to see the aftermath of when Cameron and his father get together after the car fought. Well, well, I don't want to spoil it, though I probably will later. Anyway, that's your basic setup. Ferris is trying to have a day off school with his two friends. People are trying to catch him. Will he get home in time before his parents find out the truth? But now let's talk about the writer-director John Hughes. Oddly, for a man who made all his movies in the Chicago suburbs, he grew up in Gross Point, Michigan. He was actually born in Lansing, Michigan in 1950. When he was 12 or 13, his family moved to Northbrook, Illinois. He went to school at Grove Middle School, which is now Glenbrook North High School. A lot of his films were inspired by his time there. He went to the University of Arizona but dropped out. Then he became a joke writer for people like Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers. After that, he was an advertising copywriter in Chicago. He became a regular contributor to the National Lampoon magazine. One of his stories, Vacation 58, would later become the basis for the film National Lampoon's Vacation. At National Lampoon, he was given the task of writing a follow-up to the highly successful film National Lampoon's Animal House. The next film was called National Lampoon's Class Reunion, and it was a disaster. But he followed it up with two screenplays, one for National Lampoon's Vacation and one for Mr. Mom. Both films were huge successes, and that led to a three-picture deal with Universal. He went on to write and direct three high school films between 1984 and 1986, Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Weird Science. He also wrote the screenplay for Pretty in Pink. Starting in 1987, he took a break from teen movies and made the films Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, and Uncle Buck. Not a bad string of films for a five-year period. He also wrote films such as The Great Outdoors, Home Alone, Career Opportunities, and Only the Lonely. He had been working on the idea for Ferris since 1985, but said he wrote the screenplay in less than a week. Part of the reason why he did so was that he had just moved from Universal to Paramount, but soon after the move, a writer's strike was planned, and he wanted to get it done before the writer's strike happened. So John had to quickly write the film so he could start making it before everything went down. Now, he had a good script to start with, one that was given the green light almost immediately. But as he went on, he would tinker and write and change the story throughout production. Now, John was the type of filmmaker who liked to keep creating through the whole process, including editing. And one thing that made it easier for him in this case was the fact that the film all takes place in one day. That means the characters are basically wearing the same clothes the whole time, so he could edit freely, rearranging scenes as he saw fit. Now for the role of Ferris, John Cryer, James Spader, Nicolas Cage, Keeper Sutherland, George Clooney, who they liked but thought was too old, Johnny Depp, and John Cusack were all considered. One person who initially wasn't considered was Matthew Broderick. This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for 10, I'm probably going to have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count. Not because they didn't want him, but they thought he was unavailable. 
Broderick was born in 1962 and was the son of actor James Broderick and playwright, actress, and painter Patricia Broderick. He had first come to the attention of the public on the stage in the Torch Song trilogy. He was pretty much still new to films at the time, though he had just been in the very successful War Games the year before. And currently he was in the play Brighton Beach Memoirs. The thing about Matthew, he was 23 years old when he played Bueller, but he still managed to pull it off. It was a very tricky thing. Ferris could have easily come off as a jerk. And in my opinion, well, sometimes he does. But Broderick is just charming enough to make you like him and not hate him. Like I said, he was 23, but his girlfriend in the film, Sloane Peterson, was played by an 18-year-old. Hi. Do you have a kiss for daddy? Are you kidding? The part of Sloane took a while to cast. They actually auditioned Meg Ryan, who didn't get the part because she was actually too good. They didn't want someone who would compete with Ferris. Mia Sarah was born Mia Serapakolo in 1967. And I hope, Mia, I got your last name correct. This was only her second film. The year before, she played with Tom Cruise and Ridley Scott's Legend. And she's wonderful in the film. Soft-spoken, gentle and kind. And you really buy her as Ferris's girlfriend. And the thing is, of the main cast, she was the only real teenager in the film. I do like the scene in which Ferris asks her to marry her at the stock exchange. You want to get married? Sure. Today. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not getting married. Why not? Why do you mean, why not? Think about it. Well, no. Besides being too young, having no place to live, you feeling a little awkward about being the only cheerleader with a husband. Give me one good reason. Why not? The role of Sloane was actually difficult for her. Besides being so much younger than the other two... She was also much less experienced. She said, They were also much more experienced than I was, so I was really out of my depth. But the thing about her character is, well, there's really not a lot for her to do. Though I do like the scene where she flirts with Ferris's dad from Taxi to Taxi. I thought that was really charming. What's he doing? He's licking the glass and making obscene gestures with his hands. What? <laughs> Now, later in her career, she played Jean-Claude Van Damme's wife in the 1994 film Time Cop, in which she won the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress. She would marry, then divorce, Jason Connery, son of Sean Connery, and is now married to Brian Henson, son of Muppet maker Jim Henson. Playing Ferris's best friend Cameron Fry is Alan Ruck. Who is that? Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. You're kidding? Alan was also a new actor at the time, only having been in a few things before. He had been a Chicago stage actor and then went to New York. He was almost 30 years old at the time. He had been both in Bad Boys and Class before this. Now, Alan was also in the Neil Simon play Biloxi Blues with Matthew Broderick, and it was Broderick who got Ruck the audition. Broderick said, I was working with Alan at the time in Biloxi Blues, and I just thought he was a wonderful actor, and when I read it, I kept seeing him. 
and at first they thought he was too old to play the part. And Ruck, commenting about how long they took to actually give him the role, said, I know that it was offered to Emilio Estevez before me, and pretty much every time I see him I want to hug him because he didn't need it, you know, and I did. And of course, Ruck would go on to have a very long and successful career, including Spin City from 96 to 2002, and the HBO series Succession from 2018 to 2023. Now, I'm not going to go into each individual character, a bio for each, it just isn't time on the show, but uh, quickly here, um, Jennifer Grey plays Jeannie Butler, Ferris's sister, and is perhaps the funniest one in the film. Before this, she had been in 1982's Red Dawn. And in the film, her character arc, in my opinion, is the most interesting part of the film. Now, after Ferris, of course, she would take the world by storm in the film Dirty Dancing. And she had a wonderful career until she decided to get her nose fixed. Oops. Ferris's parents are played by Cindy Pickett and Lyman Ward. Cindy had played for four years on the soap opera The Guiding Light, and Lyman had been acting in films since 1973's Coffee and was a very experienced TV actor, but Ferris was really his big break into films. Both his parents come off as a little, well, buffoonish and dim, especially Dad. Do you think that they were based, perhaps, on John Hughes' own parents? I don't know. I'm just guessing there. Probably not. Probably just written for comic effect, right? Edie McClurg plays Grace, the school secretary. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Edie's had a very surprisingly long career, if you ask me. I mean, she pops up all the time. She was in films like Cheech and Chong's Next Movie, Mr. Mom, Back to School, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and A River Runs Through It. She's a very funny person who was a former member of the comedy troupe The Groundlings. Her part in the film is sort of the power behind the throne type thing as, as Rooney's secretary. I guess the idea was that she's really the one who runs the school. Anyway, that's what they say. I don't know if it really comes off that way. And finally, I need to talk about Jeffrey Jones as Rooney. Man, Jones really pisses me off. And I don't mean as Rooney, the cartoon character in the film. I mean the real Jeffrey Jones. The man has played some pretty memorable parts in, in films like Amadeus and Beetlejuice. And he was great in those roles, but now it makes me uncomfortable to watch him after the trouble. For those who don't know, in 2003, Jones pleaded no contest to the charge of soliciting a minor to pose for nude photographs. Yikes. Anyway, enough said. And there's also cameos by Charlie Sheen. I know what's wrong. Just want to hear you say it. And Ben Stein. Bueller. 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 Of course, one thing Bueller. that makes this film unique is the way Ferris talks to the camera. And when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid. But then, so is high school. While it appears he's talking directly to the audience, I always took it as we were really hearing his inner thoughts. 
I mean, he wants to skip school, knows he shouldn't. So we hear him convincing himself to do so. I do have a test today. That wasn't bullshit. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They can be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. Ferris walks up to the camera, letting us, the audience, know what he's thinking. And of course, it's always lighthearted and funny. After all, it's a John Hughes movie, so it's all about character and dialogue. One of my favorite scenes is the opening, I guess. Besides the humor, it also lets the audience know right away what type of film they're going to see. We learn very efficiently about the relationship between him and his parents and sister. I love efficient filmmaking. It's not easy to do without a lot of overblown exposition. And there's a scene in which Ferris's sister, Jeannie, finds Rooney in the house. Her comic timing is wonderful. I mean, she pulls a great face when she screams and runs away. The scene still makes me laugh. But now it's time to talk about, well, the few problems this film has. The first is the parade. To me, it was John Hughes just trying to duplicate the Ray Charles scene from the Blues Brothers, and I I never felt it really worked. It just seemed a little awkward, I don't know. And then I wondered how they got away with the whole Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago thing, at the expensive restaurant. Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Listen, young man. Entrenou, I'm very busy here. Why don't you take the kids and go back to the clubhouse? I mean, first, Ferris must have a lot of money to pay for a meal at a place like that. But second, Abe Froman had reservations. I mean, did he just not show up? Did they get that lucky? And if he did show up, what happened? We'll never know. (laughs) But the biggest problem with the film, I think, is Ferris himself. He's a spoiled child who gets anything he wants, and he'll lie, cheat, and steal to get it. But he gets away with it because he's charming. I mean, he lies to his parents, to the school, commits fraud by changing his school records, corrupts two of his friends, and pretty much steals Cameron's dad's expensive sports car over Cameron's objections. Whatever miles we put on, We'll take off. How? We'll drive home backwards. <laughs> no. No! Ferris, forget it. You're just gonna have to think of something else. I'm putting my foot down. How about we run a nice Cadillac? My treat! We can call a limo! A nice stretch job with a TV and a bar! How about that? Come on, love a little. Of course, it's justified at the end because Cameron's going to confront his jerk dad. But does the end really justify the means? I mean, look at it this way. You're a hardworking student who is at school every day, does your homework, and earns your grade. But here's this handsome young man who skips school whenever he wants and illegally changes his school records. I would guess his grades are included. I don't know. He did it in war games, so why not here? 
But, you know, you're taking a test, and he's at a ball game enjoying himself. Hey, bada, 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 so wing, bada. Hey, bada, 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 so wing, bada. Kennedy, 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 so wing, bada. But on the other hand, he seems to really love Sloan, and, and we get the sense that he's really concerned when Cameron goes catatonic. Anyway, I know I'm taking the movie a little bit too seriously. I get it. And I enjoyed the film when it came out, and I did enjoy watching it again for this podcast. I just don't think that Ferris and I would have been friends if we grew up together. Now, I, I said I would talk a little bit about the house that was used for Cameron's home in the movie. The house was designed by someone named A. James Speyer in 1953 in Highland Park, Illinois. It's a four-bedroom house. The glass room where the car is kept in the film, that was added in the 1970s by the current owner at the time to show off his exotic auto collection. At the time of this film, it was owned by the Rose family who rented it to the filmmakers. In 2009, it was put up for sale for the price of $2.3 million, and there were no takers. In 2010, the price dropped to $1.8 million, and by 2011, you could own that famous house for the low, low price of $1.65 million, and it still didn't sell. The price dropped to $1.5 million. I read that one problem with the house is that large glass room that the cars are kept in. You see, we in Chicagoland get some pretty cold winters, and I guess it's sort of hard to keep warm. I don't know. It eventually sold for just a little over a million dollars in 2014. By the way, the car that goes flying out the window to the trees below at the end of the film, that wasn't the 1961 Ferrari. They made a cheap double just for that shot. Another filming location was the Abe Froman restaurant scene. That was filmed at a house on Dearborn Street in Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood. Actually, they only used the exteriors for the film. The indoor scenes were filmed in a studio in Los Angeles. That home is valued at $5.95 million. Now, like I said, I think this movie is a bit problematic, but I did enjoy watching it, which is the only thing that really counts. But now it's time to find out what some other people thought of this movie, and for that I turn to the IMDb database. Pontus610 gave it the full 10 stars and wrote, The greatest college movie ever made! John Hughes' Citizen Kane is one of the finest in its genre. Set as a seemingly regular college movie, it quickly transforms into something much bigger with Broderick Ferris becoming an almost mythical character able to perform and get away with anything. As usual, the film is packed with the Hughesian trademarks of subtle yet clever jokes requiring some viewing to grasp. Hughes clearly had a great time with this movie, as did the cast, which adds to the general delight of watching the film. Adds some great performances by Jennifer Grey and Jeffrey Jones, and a killer Ferrari. FBDO is the movie to watch over and over again. Okay, Ponta610, I can see you really enjoyed this movie, but I have to criticize you a bit here. Why are you calling this a college film? These kids are supposed to be high school students. I don't think blowing off a day in college would have been such a big deal. Malcolm Funny 12 gave it seven stars and wrote, It's good, but dot dot dot. First of all, I want to say I like this movie. It's a genuinely funny movie. 
Often you find yourself still laughing at the last joke when the next punchline is delivered. I especially took a liking to the socially awkward Cameron who makes this movie worthwhile with his constant negative thinking. I love the jealous sister who really wants to be more like Ferris but does not feel she could and I adore Charlie Sheen. But still, the movie is filled with situations that are just not really believable. Not considering some obviously but Hopefully, intended illogical situations like Ferris on the parade truck by self-wondering whether or not those kids are just plain stupid, like sneaking behind Ferris's father to catch a cab when they could have just waited for the next one. The plot is completely predictable, but that's part of the fun, and for the most part it was really fun, but those 10 minutes that wasn't kind of spoiled the mood. Only 5 stars is what Sugar Daddy O22 gave this film. He or she wrote, A peek into the privileged life, a case of senioritis. Despite the slacker mentality and overall sense of purposelessness, deep down we all realize that Ferris is only acting this way because he has already been accepted into an Ivy League college somewhere in the fall and will end up a banker, lawyer, or doctor eventually. Don't think for a second that he will be vexed by the decision, just as his decision over which country club to join will be equally non-disconcerning. The saddest part is that young people who have been given so much act so snotty to everyone around them. Yet we all laugh as if somehow we are in on the joke. Sure, we are able to peek into this privileged life for 90 minutes, but the large majority must go back to the grinding reality of real life knowing that money does buy friends and happiness as Ferris so artfully proves. Wow, a little harsh there, Daddy-O. And I will remind everybody out there, I read these just as written, so if they don't seem to make a lot of sense, don't blame the messenger. Saf Review 11 only gave it three stars and wrote, I thought this was going to be a good movie, but I didn't like it at all. I am so disappointed as I was expecting this to be a good movie because of all the good ratings and reviews it has, but I didn't enjoy it at all. The problem I have with this movie is that after Ferris has skipped school, he doesn't do anything exciting or rebellious, which made this movie boring for me. Also, I didn't like Ferris's personality as I found him selfish towards his mates and a bit too cocky. This is supposed to be a comedy movie, but I think there's only a couple of funny moments in the movie. I was trying my best to like this movie, but I just couldn't with a plot where nothing thrilling happens. I want to understand why this movie has gotten such good praise because I don't. Surely people watching this movie for the first time cannot like this movie and say it's better than most movies or TV shows of today that are based on high school and teen rebels. Hey, you know, teach his own. Some people get it and some people don't. And finally, the one star review is by She is a Snake 22. Snake wrote, Pretty gross how many people like this. So basically, Ferris is a rich boy from the suburbs who takes advantage of his family, friends, and treats everyone around him like crap. He's selfish and rude and totally irresponsible. I cannot believe that this movie is worshipped by a generation that calls younger people entitled. While the music was composed by American musician, actor, orchestrator, and composer Ira Newborn. 
Newborn has done a lot of the music for John Hughes' movies, along with films like The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad from 1988, My Blue Heaven from 1990, East Ventura Peck Detective from 1994, and Mallrats from 1995. He seems to specialize in comedies. In this film, his music's all over the place, not sticking to one style. And that's a good thing, really. I mean, he uses tunes that'll fit the scene. And also in this film, Hughes makes use of a lot of popular music from the time, which might date this movie just a little. Tunes like Oh Yeah by Yellow. Now I think this film still holds up today, and I think most people will enjoy it. That being said, I can also understand why people might have a problem with it. One of these days, I will talk about John Hughes' masterpiece, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but not for a while. It's crazy. I didn't know buzzards fly at night. Buzzards only come when something's dead. Bendel, Decker, to Cable One. What's happening? We see bodies. Lots of them. These people were cut down in mid-stride. Everybody's dead! You! You did it! I recommend calling a wildfire alert. All members of your team have been cleared and are now being called in. Things get out of control. Even you can't work miracles. Grandpa, there's a car and they got guns. What's going on? This communication is being monitored. A little bit before I go. First of all, I apologize for missing last week. It was just a busy week. I didn't want to rush it. And it happens once in a while when you're a one-person operation. So, But I'm back and hopefully there'll be a show next week. Um... One thing I like are fan theories. Even if they're ridiculous, I think they're fun. And one fan theory I've heard about this movie is that Ferris Bueller isn't real, that he's all in Cameron's imagination. He imagines the boy that he would like to be. Anyway, if you've got any thoughts on Ferris Bueller or any of the people involved or whatever, you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid all being one word. You can email me for any reason. Especially if you want to recommend a film for me to watch. I always appreciate that. You can use our Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And we have a Twitter page. It's at Celluloid underscore Days. I do post there daily. Next week I'm going to talk about a film called The Andromeda Strain from 1971. Directed by Robert Wise. Based on the novel by Michael Crichton. Quite a few listeners have suggested this one over the years, and this is another one I haven't seen in a long time, so I'll do my best. And before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Wednesday. If all goes well, take care. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing.